Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups and entrepreneurs from across the state of Connecticut. On this edition of The Curious Capitalist, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Michelle Nishan and Ben Perkins from Wholesome Wave. Co-founded in 2007 by Chef Michelle Nishan, Wholesome Wave was built to solve nutrition insecurity and to address diet-related diseases by helping low-income Americans buy and eat healthy fruits and vegetables. On today's podcast, I am joined by Michelle, the co-founder and chairman, and the CEO, Ben Perkins. Gentlemen, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you, Claire. Good to be here. Let's start with you then, shall we, Michelle? Can you tell me a little bit about how this came into being? Where did the idea come from back in 2007 and how did it come to fruition, if you pardon the pun? Yeah, no worries. It came to fruition of a a series of frustrations that I continued to encounter in my journey to having a son with type 1 diabetes. So my son, Chris, was diagnosed in the in the Indies and that Lori and I learned about type 1 diabetes was that what we would do is food strategy would have more to do lengthen the success of his longevity his lifespan than anything else so at first we were heartened because I'm a chef Lori and I come from a place of advantage, so we had an income, I had the knowledge, we were able to change food strategy at home, but it didn't take more than a few months for me to realize that I was now feeding people things at my restaurant that I would not feed my family. The science of the time was that all fat was bad. So it was one of those barriers that I ran into. So by 1997, I had created a restaurant concept to reconcile that tension of not being able to sleep at night. It was called Heartbeat Restaurant in the first W Hotel in 1997. It was a restaurant of well-being based on local organic sustainable, no processed food of any kind. So no butter, no cream, no flour, no sugar. And I felt like I had reconciled as a result of me being a chef who did a, a healthy food restaurant in 1997, which was unheard of at the time. And we were very well reviewed by the New York Times and others. I was invited to join a number of think tanks, including Walt Willett's group at the Harvard School of Public Health. And that's where I learned of terms like social determinants of health, something I had never heard of before, or diet-related disease epidemic, which was new to me. And I learned about the family of four that runs out of food stamps in the middle of the month and has $2 to spend on dinner for all four people, that there's no business model, no business plan. There's nothing that can provide vegetables to somebody who has 50 cents a person to spend on dinner tonight. Broccoli is just not something that'll ever be there. That's the energy that led to founding Wholesome Wave. Absolutely. And how did it come about exactly? You had some co-founders along for the ride in the beginning, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And one of my advisors was the late Michael Batterberry, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of an industry magazine called Food Arts Magazine. He was the original creator of Food and Wine Magazine as well. Michael knew I was frustrated. I was able to sleep at night when I ran into the barrier of feeding my customers something I wouldn't feed my family because all I had to do was change my concept. My customers, as long as the food was good, they could afford to spend $30 for dinner. There is no uh, $30 dinner solution for that food stamp family that has $2 for dinner. Mm -hmm. And I actually was considering quitting. And Michael said, please don't quit. You have an important voice. You've already done a 180 in your career based on this barrier that you've faced. You can figure this out. And by the way, there's a friend of mine who is aligned with you on these issues who I think can help you. And his name was Gus Schumacher. So Michael introduced me to Gus Schumacher, who at that time was the Undersecretary of Agriculture in the Bill Clinton administration. And Gus 
and I both shared a passion about figuring out a way where people struggling with low income could exercise their free American right to choose to feed their families well, that all we had to do was eliminate that barrier of lack of affordability. So we decided to create a nonprofit organization. The idea was what would happen if we doubled food stamps when spent on fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and, and when I spoke about that with Gus, Gus said, well, Michelle, you know that's illegal, but I love a good camera <laughs> and I've got the connections to maybe be able to figure out a way that we can get this done. So, so we basically founded the organization on an illegal premise and double food stamps when spent on fruits and vegetables. That's how the organization was founded. That is absolutely incredible. And you are still obviously actively involved today. What does your average day look like nowadays for Wholesome Wave? Well, it's a little nutty because we're still in this pandemic reality. It's yeah. a very strange time. It's been very disruptive. I do have a for-profit company that I created similar, really modeled after the Newman's own arrangement. Wholesome Wave, the nonprofit, owns the intellectual property to the name Wholesome Crave, which is a for-profit food company. Ah, uh, okay. We designed the company to sell plant-based soup into the scaled food service arena. So think colleges, institutions, hospitals, Google and Mountain View in California, 50,000 employees was our first customer. They're actually our, our marquee customer. And uh, COVID really disrupted that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, part of the transition we needed to do to make Wholesome Crave possible was to bring a CEO in to run Wholesome Wave so that we could have the correct kind of separation of church and state, for lack of a better term. And we hit <laughs> the jackpot because we found Ben, who is also an ordained minister. So. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it yeah. does bring me on very nicely to oh, you, then, Ben, doesn't it? What a beautiful segue into that. Anyone would think we planned that. Ben, yes. <laughs> you are the CEO. Tell me about how you ended up in this role. What's been your, your journey to this point? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, my journey to this role had to do with being in the public health field. I've been in public health for 20 years now. I started in public health in the world of HIV AIDS with a real passion for serving the community and ending the epidemic. So I worked in community engagement, working in communities to get them involved in research, clinical trials, research, behavioral research, also doing a lot of work around HIV prevention, community mobilization, opening wellness centers centered around folks who were at risk for HIV AIDS, specifically gay men, and really just became increasingly passionate about it as Michelle mentioned, one of the words I learned along the way in my work in public health is social determinants of health as a way to understand how social environmental factors impact people's lifestyle choices, their health, all those things. And so I became increasingly aware of those things and concerned and disturbed and mad, but I, remained in the fight because I've always felt like it, the end result is hopefully justice and uh, a more humane world. And so there's a deep kind of spiritual commitment to the work as well. I stayed in the HIV AIDS field for roughly about 15, 16 years. Then I had an opportunity to go to the American Heart Association to head up their health equity and multicultural initiatives work and love that. Again, it gave me an opportunity to do what I love best around uh, looking at issues, the social determinants of health, working to address those things, looking through an equity lens. So asking the question, who's on the margins and what do we do to improve access to care, to what folks need to live their healthiest, most realized life. And as a result of that, one of the things that happened in the Heart Association was I learned a lot about food and the impact of diet on population health. So a lot of the work that we were doing was looking at food access, food equity. And so again, just became more and more interested, 
had an opportunity to join the board of a, a small nonprofit here in the Boston area where I live that has done some really exciting, innovative work in the food and nutrition security space. And last year when COVID hit, of course, the issue of food, food access, nutrition access really mushroomed. And a lot of our work at the Heart Association, we were really working hard to mobilize our resources to raise funds to support uh, different organizations and really bring to the fore the issue of food access. Right about that time, a dear friend of mine who I went to divinity school with, who had done some consulting work and actually Wholesome Wave was one of the organizations that he did some pro bono consulting work for, said, hey, there's this organization, they're looking for a CEO. And I think that you have the right background and I think it would be worth you having a conversation. So if you're interested, take a look at this job description. I'll make an introduction and you take it from there. And here we are today in March of 2021 and I'm in this role. I've been in this role now for a little over three months. Wow, what a time to start a new position and what a world we are dealing with just at the moment and particularly with food equity and some of the questions around how we source things, you know, anything, you know, especially obviously food, but um, it certainly raised more questions and answers for many, many people about our reliance on, on different methods of getting things and consuming things and especially food. So Ben, tell me, what do you wish you had known before you kind of started out on this career path? The career path as the CEO or the broader career path in public health? <laughs> the broader one, the broader one. What do you wish you'd known? What would have really helped you on your way and given you the insight that you need to get to this point in your career? I think I wish I had known that a lot of the work in public health or in uh, social justice is really like, it's an exercise in delayed gratification it is uh, one of the most beautiful things I ever heard when I was in the HIV AIDS field. One of the investigators, one of the, the big wigs in the division of AIDS described the work as hearkening back to folks in the era where they were building cathedrals. And the idea that the community would help to build this cathedral, but most of them understood that they were playing a role and that they might not live to see the finished product, but that the work itself had nobility and importance and dignity and all of those things. And I think the challenge of living in a world today where we've got technology, where you can get everything quick, fast, and in a hurry, Mm -hmm. is that when you're doing work where you're trying to address deeply entrenched social problems, structural forces, there can be a real tendency to think that these things can be resolved quickly. So you can get really frustrated, really angry, all those things, rather than seeing that the work takes time and the change may not happen as quickly as we want it to, but the fact that each of us is playing a role in helping us get to a more just, humane society is beautiful, important, and necessary. Very much so. Seeing that bigger picture, you know, as you were speaking, it, it was making me think funny enough of food, not just because it's dinner time, but because it's like planting a seed. You know, you plant that seed and hope that it comes to fruition in the future. So it's it's certainly uh, one for the long haul. Michelle, question for you. You know, what do you wish you'd known before you set out on this career path? Is it that you could break the law and double snap uh, <laughs> donations? <laughs> no, um... I think what I wish I knew would be how competitive the nonprofit world of cause is. Very um, much so, yes, yes. And it's unfortunate because I think so many people get into cause through nonprofit organizations because they really want to devote themselves to change. But frankly, in many cases, the philanthropic community has this unintended habit of under-resourcing the field or temporarily resourcing the field, often changing their giving principles based on shifts in the wind or very real 
incidents that need to be addressed, like the Black Lives Matter movement, women's rights, whatever might be happening at the time, but it's so incredibly unstable and so resource depleted that a lot of organizations really spend a lot of time fighting over ownership of an issue or often not looking at the end game of how do we come together and collaborate in, in such a way that we come up with a permanent solution so that the world doesn't need our organization anymore. That actually threatens many people's livelihoods to think that way. So I was a little bit stunned by the unintentional lack of benevolence that's really created more by the environment in which nonprofit organizations are forced to operate. There's a, a, an assumption by the broader world at large when they look at the amount of money that's in philanthropy overall, the billions of dollars and say, wow, it must be easy to do something you really love and to be able to ask people for money and get it. That's just not how it goes. <laughs> no. um, it's actually that realization that led me to found Wholesome Crave. You know, my partner in Dressing Room Restaurant was the late actor Paul Newman. So I know a lot about the Newman's own model. And when I actually closed the restaurant, our lease was up in 2014, decided not to renew it because it was the year we got our first policy win in the farm bill. I knew I would have to really focus on scaling the work of Wholesome Wave. So I decided not to renew the lease on the restaurant, put 100% of my shoulder into Wholesome Crave. And a friend of mine said, are you crazy, Michelle? You tell me all the time how frustrated you are at how difficult it is to impress upon philanthropists the importance of the work, that they should be investing their money in the type of innovation that make these problems scalable to the point where philanthropy is no longer needed. You're constantly raising money. Don't you know there's this guy named Paul Newman? He used to sell food and then give the money away. <laughs> I was kind of like, duh. Uh, so I got down to the business of doing the research necessary to figure out a way to create a for-profit company that could actually feel this work. Obviously, we have the work to do now of making that company as successful as it can be. The bottom line is the more successful it is, the more rapidly we can get down to the business of putting Wholesome Wave out of business. Uh, imagine a future where Ben and his team have embedded produce prescriptions in public policies so that people on Medicare and Medicaid can be reimbursed for buying fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. Imagine a future where employers can get tax credits for providing their lower wage earners food benefits that incentivize them to buy and eat healthier food as part of their wellness plan. Imagine a future where people, regardless of income, have the financial resources, the technology, the access to transportation, the access to knowledge to where, regardless of where they are economically, it can be a part of their everyday life to make good decisions and get the food that their family needs to stay well. That's what we wanna to solve to. And that's why we created Wholesome Crave to help just get us there faster. As well, you know, any all the proceeds that go from Wholesome Crave to Wholesome Wave are completely unrestricted. So things that the philanthropic community doesn't like investing in, smartphone technology that will allow a low-income shopper to order their food online and have it delivered to their home. That's something that the philanthropic community doesn't want to invest in. If Wholesome Crave by steering 5% of gross revenues to Wholesome Wave can get Wholesome Wave the funding it needs to create its own technology to be able to do that, Bingo. So um, you know, we, we want to be able to take risks and innovate. We want to make sure that Ben has all of the tools and resources at his disposal so that he can accomplish amazing things with the organization. It sounds like such a an incredible concept of the success of your project will mean that it's no longer needed. I really like that. I like that a great deal. How did you first hear about or get involved with conscious capitalism? I got involved with the global movement through Betsy and Jesse Fink 
of the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation. And I think it was on the heels. We were at a Bali conference. It's the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And, <laughs> and, and the global conscious capitalists were there. <laughs> and talking about it, I think there was some kind of or something like that. And, you know, I engaged a few times, but, you know, frankly, it happened at a time in my life where we were just getting ready to do the work on the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive Program and the 2014 Farm Bill. And, you know, my life's been a cacophony ever since. It was really Marna Wilbur and Glenn who reached out, you know, a few months back and said, we think you would be great if you came in and joined us for a quick conversation are you familiar with conscious capitalism? And I was, but it had been a while. So it was actually the Connecticut cohort in the place that I call home that reached back out. Fantastic. Yes. I mean, conscious capitalism here in Connecticut, the chapter is, it is really active. And, and I know that the board are passionate about opening conversations and spreading the word, you know, about some of the great things that are going on and also highlighting some of the not so great things, you know, and what we need to do better at. So they, they're pretty good at that and they're very good at tracking people down. So uh, there's no escaping them. I tell you what, if the CIA ever, you know, are underfunded, I think they could get the board involved. A question for you then, Ben, if I may. What does it mean to you that your company has a higher purpose? So with Conscious Capitalism, we talk about, you know, a higher purpose within our businesses. Does Wholesome Wave have one? And, and how do you define it? What language might you use to describe what you're doing exactly, I guess? That's another great question. I would say that what we are doing is really the work of justice. The word I like to use a lot is equity. Uh, the idea of increasing access, removing barriers, in this case to nutritious food, which is at the heart of the organization since its founding. But there's also an element of dignity there uh, that was also part of the conception of the organization. The idea that it wasn't just about feeding people food, it was a recognition that people had dignity and therefore that they deserved healthy food. So there's that element there. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that's a key part of our organization. The other element I talk about, and I sort of arrange these as a, a principle called the Fed principle, coincidentally. And the F part of that mm -hmm. is the idea of fidelity. And so the communities that we serve, we want to make sure that the work that we are doing in those communities is actually informed by the community, that their voice is included in what we do, so that whatever the solution is, whatever form it takes, the community has had played a pivotal role in shaping that. Because in my experience in public health, particularly public health research, all too often what happens is we have investigators who think they know what's good for the community, develop something and wonder why it falls flat, why we can't recruit people for these trials or things like that. So the importance of fidelity recognizes, acknowledges the key role that communities play in creating the solutions that will serve them over the long haul. So together, that's the Fed principle, fidelity, equity, and dignity. And that is really the guiding principle or the guiding framework in which we approach the work now. Very much so. So we are in the middle or hopefully coming towards the end of a worldwide pandemic in case you had missed that. Can you tell me a little bit, I mean, I know you've only been with the company a matter of months at the moment, Ben, but how has the pandemic affected your day-to-day -day operations, you know, and how has it changed how you work, I guess? Well, one of the ways it's changed how I work, it's cha it changed how I even came to this job. This is the first job in my almost 40 year professional career that I got without actually meeting any of the key <laughs> players, the principals in person. It all happened virtually. It also has meant that most of the staff now work virtually. I have recently, in January, for the first time, I went to the office. And for me, the reason why that was important is because 
it was a tangible, the fact that I had to get into the car and drive from Boston to Bridgeport made it really tangible. So when I got to the office and I saw that I had an office and I got to meet my chief of staff and I got to meet Michelle and Michelle hosted me for dinner and all of those things, it made it really real. And that's one of my big concerns about the pandemic is the virtual world has been a good solution to some degree, but there's that 20th century part of me that longs for the face-to-face -face kind of human connection because I do believe that that's necessary. So that's one of the ways that the mm. pandemic, I think, has impacted the work. It's also obviously impacted the work in general, the work of food and nutrition security because the pandemic itself has really shown a light on the issue itself. So for those of us who work in public health, who know about social determinants of health, who understand things like racism as a structural force, for most of us, we knew that what would happen in the pandemic was a lot of the communities that we had seen in the world of heart disease or in the world of HIV or in the world of diabetes, all of those same populations we knew were going to be impacted significantly and disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. We saw it. And not only that, then folks who were also maybe sort of on the margins or not exactly on the margins, but close, we saw them sort of falling off the cliff with the rest of some of the most vulnerable populations. So the need, there was this chasm of need an organization that I've had the opportunity to work a bit with called Health Leads, one of the things they did very early on in the pandemic was they created a report that plotted out what they call, we talked a lot about flattening the curve. And one of the things that they showed in, in one of the graphics they put together was not only was there sort of the curve of the pandemic, but there was the social needs curve and the social sector curve. And the idea that the social sector curve and the social needs curve have rarely sort of touched each other. But what happened is when the pandemic hit, the curve, the distance between the social services sector's ability to meet the social needs went from a gap to a canyon. And so that was one of the graphic representations that articulated the impact of the pandemic. And that canyon still exists. You know, very much so. And this may not or may or may not make the final cut, but uh, I actually assist at a local food bank here in Milford, Connecticut. And I've been speaking with the lady that heads it up there and the need is incredible absolutely incredible and one of the overriding things that we hear so regularly is i never thought that i would need a food bank you know and certainly in my home country of the uk you know we've got a huge huge problem with poverty and you know with not having adequate food supplies for our population and i find it absolutely breathtaking and uh, it's why all the more reason why you know organizations like yours we need you it's not a luxury, a nice to have, a little feel good nonprofit. It's a, these people rely on you to live and to stay healthy. And let's be really honest here, being unwell or being sick in America is not a fun place to be. It's just not. So, you know, I take my hat off to you boys. I really do. Uh, Michelle, do you have anything to add to the effect on the pandemic before we move on? I think, you know, two things. One is when we looked at how our programs operate in the field, nutrition incentives. So we believe in the power of the purchase. We don't go to somebody, get them to donate vegetables and then give somebody a preloaded box of vegetables. That speaks to both the dignity and the equity in our work. We believe that there isn't a one size fits all. If you're Haitian, Somali, Mon Cambodian, American Eastern Appalachian or African-American from the west side of Chicago, 
you're all going to respond differently to a standard box of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So we've always believed in creating incentives, whether they're coupons or rewards cards that can only be spent on fruits and vegetables. But the individual gets to choose the fruits and vegetables that are appropriate for their family and shop at the place that they believe in or feel comfortable going to, where their neighbors go, where their family goes. That in nutrition incentives at a time when people need them to avoid the diet-related diseases that were hospitalizing and killing people at the highest rates in the pandemic was antithetical. Our programs, people had no choice but to go to a grocery store. So we fortunately at the time been looking into a variety of technologies that make it possible for people to order food and have it delivered to their home, or at least limit their exposure by having rewards cards that could be used at the nearest possible grocer instead of making people have to go to a farmer's market or have to go to a particular participating retailer that might not be near their home, you know, heightening their exposure. So in the very early days, we were just beginning to work with that stuff. So it was a little scary because there were places where our programs were relying on coupons and tokens where people had the currency and they were afraid to go get the food because they knew that they were at high risk and didn't want to expose themselves. So that was, there was a lot of uncertainty right at the beginning end of the pandemic. We were able to deal with that piece. And again, the other piece of it was a lot of philanthropy just slammed on the brakes and changed course. In many cases, rightly so, right after the George Floyd incident, because racial equity finally, and I hope it lasts, finally got the punctuation mark explosion that racism is alive and well in the United States and needed Mm -hmm. to be dealt with Mm -hmm. in a far more comprehensive way than what the Black Lives Matter movement had been able to accomplish. There was so much tone deafness, so much obvious ignoring of the subject. And it took that George Floyd moment, right? Mm -hmm. But what it did was it caused a lot of philanthropists to yank from what they were already supporting to go towards racial equity initiatives. So it just really highlighted the vulnerability of operating nonprofit organizations that rely on philanthropy to support their work. There's just, there's a lot, it just really highlights the uncertainty. So to me, it exposed a vulnerability in philanthropy that really needs to be addressed. So it actually excites me even more about the work that we're doing with Wholesome Crave, because I think if more entrepreneurs could really decide and answer the honest question with their in their own soul, how much is enough, and create companies where you can take revenues right off the top, if you know your model is gonna be financially successful, and you can take money right off the top and drive it towards one of society's more perplexing problems and we could get the overall business sector to do it very much in the spirit of why conscious capitalism was founded. Mm -hmm. If we could really get the business sector to come along and start to behave this way so that we don't rely on philanthropists who are often steered by think tanks and the cause of society's more perplexing problem at the moment, we could see the consistency in behavior that could actually eliminate poverty, income equality, all of these things that are driven, you know, quite frankly, through structural racism, all of these inequalities that actually create an environment where food and nutrition insecurity can thrive in the first place could evaporate if people just did business differently. So yes. I'm, I'm excited about it. The vulnerabilities that the pandemic exposed tell us all that we need to be reimagining how we do business. Very much so. I couldn't have said it better myself. Other than coronavirus and other than you know some of the volatility that you, you're talking about there, what projects or new opportunities or challenges are you guys preparing for or facing or actually implementing in this moment? Are there any particular drives that you're working on? You know, opportunities that we see, Claire, include the advent of the role technology can play in accelerating the solution to these problems. People talk about food deserts. People are talking about, finally, opportunity deserts because it's the lack of opportunity that leads to 
poverty and food and nutrition insecurity in the first place. But there's technology desert. There's an inequity in who can access technology, who can have a device. And if you can have a device, who can afford a data plan? And if you can actually have a device and a data plan, can you actually afford to order food online and have it delivered to your house? Uh, you know, I, I think technology can play a significant role. So we're actually looking now at technology companies that provide free bank accounts for unbankable community members and financial literacy training and you know wealth building uh, coaching and counseling. What happens if you can use technology to take that platform and blend it with produce prescriptions or incentivizing SNAP for healthier food purchases all in the same device so that you have at the fingertips of anybody who has access to a device or a computer can get financial literacy training, get a free bank account, build their credit, have access to nutrition incentives, produce prescriptions, shop for their food online, get it delivered to their home in a pandemic environment, learn about nutrition. I just, I think technology is our big next opportunity. And I'll always believe in Wholesome Waves theory of changes based on raising private money and deploying it to prove the concept of what could happen if public money was spent differently. We believe yep. that the systemic solution to all of these problems can be addressed through changing policies that have largely been written in a structurally racist society. You know, many people that are part of that decision-making process, it's not their intention to be functioning in a structure of structural racism. They don't wanna be there, but it's the way it was set up. And I think honestly, technology is the kind of thing that doesn't recognize what color you are, what country you came from, what your accent sounds like. I think there's some real opportunities for us, especially after this pandemic, to rethink the way that we approach some of society's more perplexing problems. And I think that's exciting. Very exciting, absolutely. It's a real leveler, you're right. Technology really does have no bounds uh, if it's implemented at the highest level to filter down to everybody. Ben, do you have anything to add to that before we move on? Well, just you know, slightly differently, uh, just to kind of echo what Michelle, some, some of what Michelle said, my thinking is the opportunities I like to think of it as sort of connecting the dots to the extent that we understand that food or nutrition insecurity is connected to other things, whether it be things like income inequality or you know, gender discrimination or those sorts of things, to the extent that we begin to connect those dots and partner with other entities that are working on those things, we create synergies and impacts. So it's a case of one plus one plus one equals 10. And I think that that's an incredibly exciting opportunity. I guess I'm kind of reminded of this old Buddhist proverb about the blind men and the elephant and each of the blind men goes to the elephant, they're touching a different part of the elephant. And so when they're asked what the elephant is like, some says, oh, it's like a tree trunk. Some say, oh no, it's like a car or whatever. And each one has a partial truth but together they really have a true sense of the scope of the problem, of the phenomena. And so to me, that's a really exciting opportunity to begin to, as Michelle talked about, look partnering with organizations that are working in financial literacy and security and those sorts of things. That to me is a really exciting opportunity. I also think to go back to the observation about the impact of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, as much as I think innovation and technology are, play a critical role, one of the things that I think came out of that sort of annus horribilis, as the queen would say, is uh, <laughs> that it really broke open a lot of folks' consciousness, broke their hearts open. And so there's an opportunity for some amazing sort of radical moral and ethical imagination that I think can inform technology, that can inform all different aspects of society, that can create the kind of moral and ethical innovation 
uh, to parallel things like technological innovation. So I think that there are tremendous opportunities there. Very much so. We are in a very transitional time, it feels like, in so many areas of our lives. You know, I think it's a time of great change. It's, uh, it is exciting and shining a light on some of our, perhaps not our strongest points in society. This is a great time to do it. You know, it feels like, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I can't really put it into words. It feels like a bit of like a pre-tremor before earthquakes. You know, it feels like, you know, this has given us an opportunity to really look at things differently. And uh, let's hope it's better. <laughs> Please let it be better. Okay, a question for either of you, actually, I'm not sure who wants to take this one. Maybe you, Michelle, to start with. If a company, you know, wanted to make a shift towards being more conscious, and it could be any company, but they wanted to get involved, to back, to support something more conscious, what would your advice be to that company? My advice would be, and it depends on the size of the company. If it's a large company, and hopefully the company has an established set of operating principles and core values, you really want to, as a company, choose something that's consistent with a deeper held belief beyond profitability. You know, I do these boot camps with chefs in partnership with the James Beard Foundation. And one of the things that we help the chefs do is find the thing that helps them stay awake at night because you know, just like companies, it's not uncommon for a chef who's running a business or multiple restaurants to donate gift certificates back the local soccer team, Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation, but numerous causes and over the course of a year spend anywhere between thirty dollars and $150,000 in time and materials, donations, gift certificates to support 15 different causes. And that's fine. But what we've done with the chefs, so I would recommend this to any entrepreneur, business owner, or management team, find the things that everybody believes as a company cannot and should not stand. The things that would keep you awake at night and put 100% of your effort, whether you're going to philanthropically donate percentage of sales, create a product line, whatever it might be that you're going to do to create palpable, sustaining support to that thing that keeps your company awake at night, do that. Because then it, it comes from a place of authenticity. It's genuine. It's more genuine. Don't just do it for the sake of, well, I need to prove to people I'm giving back so that they just don't think of me as the typical capitalist who's focused on the next quarterly return. Be thoughtful about it. And if you have many, many employees, it's worth taking a year and going through some facilitative workshops and think tanks to get everybody's ownership in it. Because if it's not something that every employee of the company can be proud of or feels on board with, or they feel that you're just doing it as a marketing ploy to buff your brand, you know, is how meaningful is it going to be really? Because to me, it's equally or even more important that the company has a profound experience in deciding what it is they're going to do to contribute to the society that's created an environment for their success. It's gotta be profound for them too. Yes. Otherwise, will it really last? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that taps into some of the, you know, the principles of conscious capitalism as well about leadership as well, and carrying that message down from the top and filtering it through to all members of staff to, to really, you know, make that difference. Ben, do you have anything to add to that? Sure, I would just add to it. I think one of the things that's critically important is for the organization to do its internal work. So there's the sort of external facing work that's about making the change out in the world. But I believe that there's sort of that internal work that has to happen too, that fearless moral and ethical inventory and there's some great work in terms of organizations and individuals doing that work of coming to consciousness because one of my favorite adages is, is this idea that 
unconsciousness does not equal innocence or goodness. So to come to consciousness also requires that there's internal work to be done. And also looking at the organization as an organism, there's some really great models. One of my advisors when I was a doctoral student um, had this model called the immunity to change, a guy by the name of Bob Keegan. And he talked about the uh, an organization as a kind of organism and that as with any organism, the organism has an immune system or thermostat. And so any foreign body, in this case, any kind of change that things get activated, antibodies that attack that change and keep that organization, that organism at a homeostasis. So there's work to be done internally uh, because what you don't want is you don't want to be an organization that professes one thing externally, but has all of these mechanisms in place that actually keep the change from happening, truly impactful change, sustainable change. Yes. Okay, last couple of questions for you gentlemen then. I've kept you long enough. Michelle, question for you. When you are not focused on your work with both entities, what do you do to relax? What do you like to do? TV, sports, gardening, what floats your boat? I don't relax. No, no, I, I love cooking food, even though I've done it all my life professionally. I, I grew up cooking. I can't remember not cooking food. So that very meaningful to me. So I love feeding people, love entertaining, and I love music. I actually thought my career was going to be as a musician. Wow. Until I learned how easy it was to be hungry and be a musician. <laughs> uh, you know, my mom convinced me into getting a job in a restaurant because I already knew how to cook. I learned growing up on a farm, taking the lives of animals and butchering. That's, that's how I learned to cook. I just thought it was a normal life school that everybody knew. I love music and I do have, yeah, because I grew up on a farm uh, in the summertime with my grandparents. We have a quarter acre organic garden in the backyard and and that's what we do so always plenty of stuff to do food music and growing food sounds good to me when can i come around ben what about yourself what do you do to relax and unwind i also love food sometimes i cook i love to read i'm a voracious reader i love to watch uh, documentaries i love history theology all those sorts of things I like walking, just simple stuff. I used to be a runner, but my knees uh, rebelled. Uh, so, and one of the things I'm trying to do post COVID or hopefully if COVID ever ends is really get back into a much better sort of routine around self-care, like exercise and stuff. I used to have this great trainer I worked with for many, many years and he kept me in shape. So I miss a lot of that, but it's something I want to get back to because it helps me uh, in a lot of ways, but food, reading, um, a good documentary. Absolutely. I take my hat off to you. The only running I do is uh, running a bath. So uh, <laughs> if you could have dinner, Ben, with any figure in history, you can pick a couple if you wish. If you could have dinner with any figure in history, they can be alive or dead. Who would it be? And what questions might you ask? Wow. <laughs> Listen, this is why they pay me the small bucks, Ben. This is why these questions, they're thoughtfully crafted <laughs> yeah uh abraham lincoln just i would love to see how he how he sort of processed everything how he understood everything that was going on in a country that was at war against itself uh, and martin luther king of course just you know what kept him going especially when faced with such tremendous adversity. And uh, yeah, anybody who has a resilient spirit or who has uh, persevered in the face of amazing obstacles to me is someone worth having dinner with and understanding because that's the kind of fuel that for me personally, I really need. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel the same. What about yourself, Michelle? It would absolutely be my late mother. She taught me how to cook. She taught me how to garden and farm. She taught me how to love people through food, that food is a living thing and that out of all things in the world, other than water, 
It's the only other thing that we absolutely have to engage with and manage in a meaningful way if we are to survive another week. We needed to live. I didn't realize the extent and the depth of what she was telling me and teaching me until after she was gone. The wholesome wave, it was barely a kernel of, of an idea when she passed. And, you know, I just, so many of the understandings that now I would just never be able to let go of that give breath to every piece of energy that I put into my work originated with her in her way. She saw no color. She saw, she saw all she saw were humans that, and her, her biggest thing in life was how do I get this very grumpy, unhappy person to smile? Oh, and it was wow. often through food. And I would love to have dinner with her and just let her know that it all worked out. You know, that her words and her teachings came to fruition that was more profound than I gave her credit for at the time that she was trying to drum it into my head <laughs> in, in a very gentle and loving way. I would just love her to know. I suspect she does, but that's a meal I would love to have. And it wasn't until after she passed away that I actually perfected her uh, chicken and dumplings. <laughs> so I, I'd love to be the one who cooked it for her. Yeah, wouldn't that <laughs> be something? Serve it to her and then have that conversation. What a lovely idea that, you know, your one aim, if you like, is to make people smile. I don't think yeah. it gets any better than that, Michelle. I really don't. With that, gentlemen, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. I really genuinely appreciate it. Lots of very thoughtful conversation and and real inspiration, I think, about how we tackle business, how we tackle our social problems. It's been absolutely fascinating. I cannot thank you enough. If people want to reach out and connect with you guys, what can they do? Do you have a website? Is there, What's the best method of, of getting involved, Ben? So our website is wholesomewave.org and my personal email address is ben at wholesomewave.org. Amazing. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough. Thank and you let, so let's much. Let's not for your time. forget wholesomecrave.com. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, that's a, <laughs> and, and my email is michelle at wholesomecrave.com. You got it. And, and if people if people go online and they buy some soup, they're supporting Wholesome Wave. So. There you go. You heard it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Wholesome Crave equals Wholesome Wave. Thank you so much for your time today, guys. I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. For more information, you can visit the website, connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org.